So hello, it is the April 2002 Oregon Poison Center Journal Club, and today we're talking about uh, how we monitor for emerging drugs of abuse with a focus on several projects that have occurred um, in Europe and different countries, and then um, bring it back around to a sort of recent article that wastewater monitoring, which may be the future of this. But I want to start out with the first um, project, which is called STRIDA. STRIDA, S-T-R-I-D-A, was a project in Sweden between 2010 and 2016 when somewhat abruptly they ran out of funding for it, but it was a wonderful idea. Um, basically, the way it worked, and we're going to hear a few articles from it, is this was a joint project of the Karolinska Institute and the Karolinska University Laboratory and the Swedish Poison Center. And if you call the Poison Center for a consult in those years, they sent you a, a drug label where you can get samples of biological fluids, urine or blood, to be sent to their lab. And they did pretty comprehensive testing to find out what these novel drugs of abuse are. And they were doing really well with increasing numbers over the years. Um, I'll give you a little bit of their demographic data, which is in here. Um, that, you know, and then abruptly they sort of ran out of funding. So not unexpectedly, the group that most likely ended up in this uh, study were young men, predominantly like 70% some men, and usually in the age of 20 to 30. And they found a whole variety of new novel substances over the years that were novel emerging. They sort of do a year-by-year -year breakdown, and I'll just kind of highlight. So the first year, 2011, was first full year, uh, they identified 21 novel substances. In that period of time, it was mostly cathinones, which we call bath salts and amphetamine derivatives. 2012, they identified another 18 substances, and there was a bit of a change to synthetic cannabinoids and designer benzos, and then some hallucinogens like the N-bone uh, derivatives. And in 2013, there was another 21 novel substances um, detected, including some things like uh, the Allen Hambury's derivative opiate that came back into usage and the notorious MT45, which was another opiate derivative that was super highly potent. In 2014, another 13, 39 new substances, including the high-potency uh, synthetic cannabinoids, like the Abinaca, Chiminaca cannabinoids were picked up, and also the analog of uh, fametrazine, uh, 3-fluorofemetrazine, so a weight-loss derivative drug. And in 2015, which was their last full year, they did add another 27 novel substances, and this is where the design of fentanyls came into play, and we're going to hear about that in a few minutes specifically, and more designer benzos came into play. So they were sort of on the forefront of where all these substances were being detected um, by biologic samples, but the downside is you had to get to the emergency department with enough symptoms to prompt someone to say, hey, let's call the poison center on this. And the poison center is pretty much the same way as our poison centers in the U.S. function. Uh, lay people or physicians can call it. And then you had to at least want to go through obtaining a biologic sample and sending it in. And it was free and it was anonymized, so it was a pretty good incentive to like get it done, but still wasn't 100% of the cases. They also found, besides those main things, some other things during the course of their existence. They found... Um, Kratom showing up in a small number of cases, Yohimbine showing up around 2012, um, these brominated um, phenteramines showing up like Dob, um, pregabalin and tramadol and tramadol derivatives showing up, and then of course all the usual things like ethanol, cannabis, um, cocaine, and amphetamines. So it's a pretty interesting project, and they don't really go into why they suddenly lost uh, comprehensive funding in 2016. There was another uh, kind of Europe-wide agency that kind of picked up the pace from there. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I want to start out with uh, two or three of the papers that came out of the Strider project, and we're going to start with the first one with Lisa 
on um, MDPV. So one of the studies that came out of this dried up project was looking at MDPV, which stands for 3,4-methylene-dioxypyrovalerone. Um, this is a synthetic cathinone and potent dopamine reuptake inhibitor that gained popularity in Sweden when uh, methedrone, another synthetic cathinone, was outlawed in 2008. Um, so Strida looked at the number of MDPV-related um, inquiries over a period of time between 2010 and 2014. And over this five-year period, out of the 4,500 suspected novel um, substances related inquiries that they received, 662 or 15% of them were thought to be due to MDPV and they were able to confirm 200, 201 cases by LCMS analysis. The age range of patients were from 18 to 68 with a median um, age of 35. In 15% of cases, MDPV was a single psychoactive substance identified in serum and urine specimens, meaning that 85% were co-ingestions. Out of um, the other 171 cases, the other substances detected included ethanol in 32%, cannabis in 29%, and then also the most commonly used other novel um, psychoactive substance was another cathinone derivative, um, alpha-PDP. Um, in terms of clinical manifestations of patients who had ingested MDPV, most common was agitation in 67%, tachycardia in 56%, hypertension in 34%. And then uh, lower amounts of patients, uh, hallucinations in 16 and delirium in 15. Um, they, and then only 7% um, of patients that had ingestions of, um, that were confirmed mono ingestions of MDPV developed hyperthermia. Um, and all of this seemed consistent with the sapathomimetic toxidrome. Treatments that patients received, 56% um, received benzodiazepines, 14% received haloperidol, and 8% received propofol. And only 4% or 7 patients from the case series required innovation, and the majority, 89%, could be discharged within one to two days. Yeah, so had um, people been paying attention to this report in, in the U.S. that would have somewhat predicted the onset of the whole bath salt phenomenon. These were the original bath salt was MDPV and there were several others that came along in the wake of that. These are all legal substances as they were in Sweden. They were, they were kind of sold in the U.S. in like gas stations and quick uh, supermarket kind of places and it took everyone by surprise um, and nobody had heard of this but had they been reading or hearing about these published reports, they might have gotten a notion that something from Europe was coming and this was, was that. Um, all, there's a nice little graphic in your paper that shows almost as quickly as it appeared out of nowhere, about two years later, it started falling off, and at least the MDPV one started falling off. We do know that other substituted cathinones quickly moved in to take its place as that one was, was outlawed both there and in here. Um, there's another one that didn't catch on as much in the U.S., but they also came out around that same time, which are these three meow and four meow PCP derivatives, which are even more esoteric, but to tell us about that part of the project as well. So the three methoxy benzyclidine and four methoxy benzyclidine or three meow or meow PCP and four meow PCP so these are dissociative anesthetic type substances that act by antagonism of the NMDA receptors, and they're in the same class as PCP, ketamine, and dextromethorphan. They were first noted in Sweden in the mid um, in, in mid 2013, and with the Strida project, um, they tracked these cases between July of 2013 and March of 2015. Out of the um, 1,243 calls that they got related to novel um, psychoactive substances during that 21-month 20 month time period, 56 or 
four and a half percent of those calls um, were thought to be suspected intoxications of three meow PCP, um, and 0.9 percent were thought to be due to four meow PCP. The median age range was 26, and 86 percent of the calls um, or of the patients were male. Um, similarly to the MDPB paper, they found that very few of um, these patients or these um, calls were regarding single, single substance ingestions. So only 12% um, were single substance. Co-ingestions were diazepam in 48%, THC in 35%, ethanol in 33%. And then 17% had also um, been confirmed to ingest five methoxy MIPT, which is a psychedelic substance. Clinical signs among the people with single substance ingestions included hypertension in 100% of cases, tachycardia in 71%, and altered mental status in 57%. Um, and the classic sign that I think of with PCP intoxication, the one that we learn, is nystagmus, and 29% of patients also experience nystagmus. 87% required in-hospital care um, for one to two days, and 37% were graded as being severe intoxications. 44% were treated with benzodiazepines, 22% with propofol, and 8% with haloperidol. One of the interesting points that they, they pointed out and that they looked into was the cross-reactivity of these PCP derivatives with the Ceta PCP immunoassay, which is an immunoassay that specifically tests for PCP and is, is used widely. Um, of the 53 urine samples uh, that they tested with analytically confirmed 344-MEO-PCP, uh, 85% tested positive for PCP on this immunoassay. And this highlights the importance of obtaining confirmative methods based on mass spec rather than immunoassays. Um, they pointed out that there had been a case series in 2014 in the U.S. Um, of supposed PCP intoxications, but because they didn't get LCMS or other confirmatory methods, it's unclear if this was truly PCP or another psychoactive substance. Yeah, we don't see as much PCP as years ago, but these new derivatives are out there in low amounts. I think it was great that they were able to look at how much cross-reactivity there was. So there is some, but it's not perfect. So you do need not just the immunopubisa assay, but the LC mass spec, or even they use time of flight or comprehensive ways of picking up these substances. Um, some people have referred to these as catalogs, as the way we talk about fentalogs. Um, these are not a huge percentage in the US right now, but Part of the problem is we may not be looking for them, but there is a novel psychoactive substance group that is trying to identify things, although it's a little more complex here as far as mailing the samples off to the, the labs, as we all know, so having participated in that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. One of the last projects, probably I think is one of the most important ones that came out of the Strider studies, was one looking at the fentalogs, if you will, the novel designer fentanyls, because they really, if you were paying attention when this article came out, kind of predicted the whole last wave of opiate uh, problems in the U.S. So, Cesar, tell us about that this article. Yeah, so this article was looking at intoxications involving acrofentanyl uh, during April, or between April and October of 2016. Uh, so these patients, uh, they were able to identify 11 patients that had acrofentanyl. And of those patients, four had other fentanyl analogs in their system as well. So the other four had, there was one patient that had chloroisobutorfentanyl, uh, one that had four fluoroisobutorfentanyl, and then one had tetrahydrofluorine fentanyl, and one had cyclopentyl fentanyl. Um, so of these patients, Six were treated in the ED and five were admitted and treated in the ICU. One patient eloped from the ED and one patient passed away. Um, 
So they report that patients had the typical effects from opioids. They had decreased consciousness, respiratory depression, and meiosis. Eight of the patients received naloxone, of which six responded to standard dose naloxone. One was placed on naloxone drip uh, and was watched in the ICU, and a total of three patients got intubated. Um, five of these patients had other drugs identified, uh, and the paper calls them classic drugs and says it was mostly benzodiazepines. And then the one patient that died, they were able to give a little bit more detail to help kind of contextualize the death. The patient died of what they call brain edema, uh, and the patient was a known abuser of various drugs and was found uh, without a pulse by his family, and they started CPR. EMS arrived and noted an asystolic rhythm, continued CPR, and brought the patient to the ED where he received naloxone, and they obtained ROSC after 90 minutes of CPR. So I don't think it was necessarily anything to do with the drug that he was taking so much as the circumstances during which he was resuscitated. But they go through and talk about how they identified the various uh, analogs of fentanyl and kind of look at their properties, but it seems like they all have a very similar uh, profile to normal fentanyl. Yeah, and, and since then, there have been other substances that have been these substituted fentanyls or fentanylogs that have come along both throughout Europe and, and the United States, and we're trying to keep up with identifying them, but which isn't easy. You remember, if you use regular fentanyl, you're using like microgram amounts, and by the time it gets down to the urine, you're talking nanogram amounts. And their assay was sensitive for all these ones that they identified down to 0.5 nanograms per mil, which is pretty dilute, although certainly, as we'll see with the wastewater papers coming up, you can get even lower than that to find a lot of novel substances. Um, what's interesting is that Narcan works in almost all these cases, which has been a worry that maybe Narcan didn't work when the first fentanyl abuses started coming out in the United States. But at that point, Narcan at least was a prescription-only medication in Sweden, and um, it was slow to be adapted in the United States as well, and so it took two or three years before sort of getting this out there became important. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Unfortunately, this, that study came to a rather abrupt end. But while it was sort of in its last years, there was another project started out of England, which is called the European Drug Emergencies Network, or EuroDEN. Um, they reported their results to some of the same overarching monitoring uh, agencies, such as the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction, or MCDI and the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime. And their goals are pretty similar, but they the, the thing that was lacking from this was they really didn't have the analytical piece. They weren't able to offer um, free drug testing, and drug testing had to be done at each of the local sites throughout the study. Um, the concepts for this started happening as early as 2005, but they really didn't get up to speed until about 2013-2014. So it was sort of overlapping the middle years of Strider. And their goals were basically to develop this project to address, you know, what deficiencies we have in sort of intelligence, as you will, for emerging drugs. Um, they also wanted to understand the variations throughout Europe, not just look at a single country. So they enrolled an increasing number of countries in the 28 European member states and Norway and Turkey, which were not member states at that time. Um, they only looked at emergency room presentations, and they just collected data like we collect data uh, based on clinical findings, and it was really up to local uh, availability whether or not they can actually test for any of these drugs. So let's talk about a couple of papers. Well, both of these studies, by the way, picked out maybe a half a dozen papers or more, and I'm not going to go through all of them. I tried to pick ones that were focusing on some unique aspects each. And one of the interesting ones that emerged from one of the papers was on the Z drugs and the benzodiazepines, or at least some of the novel ones. So to tell us all about that uh, is Mimi. Okay. 
Um, so the title of this paper was a presentation to the EEP of the Medical Use of Benzodiazepines and Z-Bets. Um, so the goal of this study was to identify and describe trends of non-medical benzodiazepine um, and Zika use in Europe. Um, and by Zika, um, they mean uh, Zofitem and the other one was Zofitem. Um, and they also wanted to compare uh, regional differences with legal drug sales data. Um, so they have this um, pretty cool um, data set uh, called the Euronet uh, BN, the Euro Drug Emergencies Network Collection Data, um, which collects data on presentations to sentinel EDs with um, people who present with acute uh, drug toxicity. Um, so, for example, they have um, big cities, it tends to be a lot of big cities um, in um, EU countries. So, like they have uh, Copenhagen in Denmark and Paris in France. Um, initially, they only had um, 10, um, 10 countries um, in the study, in this data set, um, and then they increased it to 20. Um, so they used this data set, um, they extracted uh, demographic information, uh, co-ingestion information, clinical features, and uh, outcome, outcomes. Um, and they also uh, got drug sales data from um, I. QVIA, which is a um, is an American um, multi-country um, pharmaceutical company. Um, so, as for the results, uh, they found that uh, non-medical use of uh, benzos and Z drugs consisted of um, a fifth of the um, acute uh, recreational drug toxicity presentation to EDs. A quarter of these were due to lone uh, benzodiazepine or um, drug use. Um, the most common co-ingestant uh, was heroin. And they cited five fatal cases. Um, and they also noted that four out of those five cases were fatal due to uh, other co-ingestants. Um, and they also noted a prominence of certain drugs in certain countries. So, for example, um, Alcazlam is um, very popular in Spain, and Diazepam is very popular in the UK. Um, and there was a moderate to high positive correlation between um, ED presentation data um, and sales data. Um, so there were a couple of limitations to the study. Um, this is so this data is from a Sentinel Hospitals data set. Um, and this might not reflect the regional um, patterns throughout the rest of the country. Um, also, drug sales do not um, always uh, reflect um, um, drug sales do not always reflect the supply because there could be additional supply routes. Um, and unfortunately, um, they were not able to obtain drug sales data for every country, just um, certain ones. Yeah, and, and again, some of these drugs were not uh, legal prescription drugs. They were sort of, you know, uh, designer uh, benzodiazepines. So the Z drugs were all prescription drugs. And I think they came on the market as these are safer, like every drug that comes along, these are safer, this is not like benzos, you won't get addicted to it. There's no problems with misuse, abuse, and diversion. And in fact, there is. And they showed it a little bit here, and we've seen it with other studies as well. What was interesting is like each country in this sort of more broad spread EU consortium had their own little favorites of what seemed to be predominant. You know, why does Zopaclone show up in Ireland but not in other studies? Why does Germany like ben diazepam? You know, why does Norway like clonazepam? I mean, it's very paradoxical. And it seems to correlate, at least with the drugs that are legal benzos, with sales data, which kind of makes sense. People come in and they say, I need this for sleep, or I need very, very few of these probably for pain-related symptoms. But, you know, you always have to wonder. And they also found, you know, small amounts of the ones like nitrazepam and you know, things like that that were 
non-prescription uh, drugs that are uh, essentially illicit benzos. Now, I don't believe they were seeing a lot of eftazalidam, which we're seeing now currently with sort of these fake Xanaxes that we've seen in this country, um, but there are other ones out there. But they found over 25 different benzos circulating throughout Europe, and this is as of 2019, which is not that long ago. So again, sort of a marker of things to come. In fact, you know, these drugs did migrate um, around and over to the U.S. as a rising problem with drugs of abuse. I want to cover one more uh, Euroden project, which looked at uh, MDMA, or ecstasy, as we sometimes commonly call that. So, Joe. All right. So, the name of this paper was called MDMA-Related Presentation to the Emergency Department of the European Drug Emergency Network Plus, Eurogen Plus, over a four-year period of 2014 to 2017. Basically, in the study, they were trying to provide like a broader overview on the recreational use of MDMA, uh, resulting in presentations to ED. Uh, to do this, they basically did a retrospective observational study of ED presentations reported in this Eurogen Plus database between the 1st of January 2014 and December 31st, 2017, so a four-year period. And this included 32 Sentinel centers in 21 countries across Europe, uh, and the population of individual reporting MDMA use alone in combination with other drugs or alcohol. And then they kind of looked at the geographic and demographic trends in this data and declares different variables of <clears throat> lung-use MDMA and lung-use cocaine in the emergency department presentations. They used cocaine because it was the most commonly presented uh, stimulant in uh, Europe at the, from the data they got. So for the statistical outcomes of this, they had uh, a total of two, uh, two, or 23,948 cases of those cases in the Eurogen Plus uh, list, only 2013 of them were uh, MDMA related, which is 8.4%. And of these, uh, of that uh, 2013 cases, about 71.3% were males, as opposed to 28.7% of the females. Females were slightly younger than the males at medium age of 23, where the males were 25. Low use uh, of MDMA only accounted for about 4.4% of this, whereas MDMA in combination with alcohol and other drugs was drastically much higher at 95.6% of the use. Alcohol was the majority of this time, uh, 70.4% of the cases involved alcohol. So that makes kind of sense with people using MDMAs at clubs, raves, or parties, uh, are kind of uh, expanding on that and using it as bars and outside of raves as time has gone by. Uh, so a toxicologic analysis, uh, analysis of uh, the individuals that presented the ED was only performed at 24.1% of these cases, and only about like 61.7% tested it for MDMA, and of the ones that were tested for MDMA, the vast majority were positive for it at 97%. The rest were negative for MDMA, had uh, testing for Amphetamines or methamphetamines are positive for those substances. Uh, so, based on the geographical distribution of these cases, Slovakia had the highest proportion of MDMA cases at uh, 15%. Uh, less than 5% of these cases occurred in, occurred in Norway, and France was also fairly high at 15%. The UK had the highest total number of cases at 851. And Norway had the highest total number of Eurogen plus presentations at 6,783. Uh, so toxicologic analysts related to MDMA related to presentations. Uh, it was much more common for people under age 35 to present to ED compared to 38 years old. Uh, you saw this proportion kind of change uh, in the years, I think it was 2014, 2015, where you saw a large uptake in and people from uh, like not large, but statistically significant uptake of people greater than 35 start presenting to the ED uh, with uh, MDMA exposures. Uh, observational management disposition 
outcome of loan can be made use and loan cocaine use was compared also in this paper. Loan MDMA use occurred more frequently during the weekends uh, and at night. So uh, in the weekends, they occurred like at 58% versus 48% uh, on the weekdays. Uh, there was no difference comparing it to cocaine on the occurrence at night. I guess most people do these stimulants at night, which kind of makes sense. Or right is the E. And also the clinical features of acute toxicity in loan MDMA use compared to loan cocaine use were fairly similar. Uh, medium temperature, heart rate, systolic and diastolic pressures, respiratory rate, and lactate did not differ significantly. People uh, with MDMA had more chance of having seizures and vomiting, which might go along with like that kind of old wives' tale that you had to drink a lot of water when you were on MDMA, and uh, people would just drink, 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 become hypothermic and develop seizures. So that might be what I mean. That's just me speculating. That might be why you had more. Uh, with cocaine use, there was more uh, people presumed to the ED for palpitations and chest pain associated with low-use uh, cocaine. So, I thought this was a cool paper. Uh, it seems like it really expanded on the MDMA use in Europe and gave more of a clear history. Uh, so, there was uh, you know, some limitations that come with a lot of these epidemiologic studies. Uh, enrollment spontaneous, spontaneous. Uh, rather than randomly assigned. Uh, you also are only getting uh, a picture of the people who present the ED, not the total picture of people who are using these drugs. Uh, and uh, a lot of times, since like, I think it's like 97% of the people presenting with MDMA-related exposures were poly-drug and slash alcohol consumption, so that might be a little confounding to the uh, clinical symptoms. But otherwise, I thought it was a cool picture and a in a uh, paper that showed a little more of European use of MDMA and how it's been throughout the years in demographic terms. Yeah, no, I think uh, you know, a more recent paper, but obviously ecstasy MDMA has been around for a long time. We've seen rises and falls of its use, but apparently this is still able to show that it's been there through the late 20 teens through 2017. One of the kind of throw, almost throwaway lines in this article was that they found a lot more lone MDA use on the weekend. And so one of the authors of this probably said, hmm, I wonder if there's a way we could just like put out a confirmation depot for weekend use and study that. And even though this other study was actually done a couple of years before then, this is sort of one of those classic brilliant ideas in toxicology by David Wood, who was an author on that study and this study as well as the rest of the group there in London. So, Courtney, tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a really interesting paper that goes through the analysis of wastewater. And it's called the Trend Analysis of Anonymized Pooled Urine from Portable Street Urinals in Central London Identifies Variation in the Use of Novel Psychoactive Substances. This was out of Clintox in 2014. And the background of this is that the analysis of wastewater at sewage treatment plants to monitor recreational drug use um, has really been previously limited for NPS or novel psychoactive substances. And it's important because people will often refer to them as a legal high. And um, researchers in the UK have noticed an increase in the usage of these, especially in the nightclub community that Skip was just talking about. Um, but previously, it's been really difficult to get data on the trends of both classic drugs and the NPS. Um, usually they use web mapping, monitoring systems, a lot of uh, surveys that rely on um, sort of uh, self-reporting. Um, and of course, one of the pitfalls is that users don't always know what they're taking. Um, so wastewater analysis has been an alternative to this to detect drug residue and quickly at lower concentrations based on what these authors have done. Um, so what they really wanted to look at was patterns of recreational drug use by the analysis of this urine from portable street urinals, which they also call piss waters. Um, and it's, it's across a, a big geographical area in central London, and they did this over six months. So what they did was they used 12 four-bay portable urinals, and they put them out once a month across the city. And they were available for use on weekends, placed at the same discrete location every time, and they were available for 12 hours overnight. So uh, Friday and Saturday nights, um, from something like eight, you know, eight p.m., six a.m. or something like that, from July to December in 2012, and they are designed for use by male anatomy only. 
Um, just so you know, so there's no flushing mechanism, and they hold about 400 liters. So they would sample about 100 mils from that and store it prior to analysis. Um, they used three screens just to keep in mind when they go through the results. So there was a basic drug screen, a general drug screen, and a synthetic cannabinoid screen that was specific. Um, and then any suspect peaks that they found were then uh, analyzed by mass spec after that. So uh, in terms of their results, they were able to reliably detect nicotine and caffeine, which they felt was very reassuring because it validates the samples. Most of the general public uses these substances, so um, it was good external validity for that. Um, and then if you have the paper up, table one shows the actual frequency of drug detection by the drug and the number of urinals that they found it in over the course of the months. So they were able to consistently detect uh, caffeine, cocaine, morphine, and MDMA with very little variation. So found the same number of urinals over a consistent number of months had the same drugs in it, right? And then uh, there was a month-to-month -month variability in the detection of uh, amphetamines, ketamine, and cannabis. And then they also were able to detect 13 novel psychoactive and uh, they talk about methadrone and methylhexanamine detected consistently. And some other common NPS they were able to find were methylcopamine, piperidrol, caffeinone, 5 2 aminopropyl benzofuran, and 4 methamphetamine. So some of the NPS, though, were detected on a short term basis. So, for example, you know, one sample or one urinal from a single month of collection. Um, and there's a couple of, of NPS that found that category, such as like four flu um, But they thought it was very interesting that uh, methoxetamine, which is a ketamine analog that was recently controlled in the UK, and synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists weren't detected in any of the samples. So I think they were expecting to find that, and they didn't. Um, which I think is actually interesting because they do point out that it was recently controlled, so, so you would think that it had been present enough in the community such that it needed to um, have some kind of legislature. Um, so in their discussion, uh, they have cited previous studies that used the, the same method, um, and generally they were only detecting a handful of NPS of three or five in a nightclub on a single night. So this sort of longitudinal six-month um, method allowed detecting a 13 NPS, and it was able to monitor trends, sort of this either month-to-month variability or consistent uh, um, detection of uh, the NPS and the classic recreational drugs. So um, there are, of course, possible limitations to this. Um, so often in the sort of wastewater analyses or the pooled urine analyses, um, the concern is for degraded samples that might result in limited detection. Right, so some of the NPS, we know, um, already the detection thresholds are so low that we may not find them. And then there's dilution of the compounds in large wastewater analysis, right? Um, so, for example, that was one of their theories about why they didn't find synthetic cannabinoids. Like they were really expecting to find that they didn't find any of them. And they had a dedicated drug screen to that, too. It was one of the theories that was surprising to them. Um, but the, the biggest strength of this study is that the urine sampling compared to general wastewater is closer to the source. They were able to collect it pretty much right away, and it's particularly not contaminated. It was only urine in pools. Um, and uh, they were hoping that this would allow them the chance for greater greater sensitivity of detection. Um, during the sampling of the late time, uh, time they called it. So it was a really interesting study, I think, uh, based on some interesting yeah, I think this is one of those brilliant ideas is you didn't have to wait for people to get sick enough to call a poison center or sick enough to take an ambulance or show up with your friends in an emergency room and then wait for that emergency room to get the right lab sampling, as we know, we recommend things all the time, including this morning, and they don't necessarily follow up and do that. Um, and so you never really know what's emerging. But this is like, all you have to do is like wheel this out on a Saturday night, collect it on Sunday morning, run the lab tests during business hours, and you can see the emerging trends of drugs um, in London. And, and about the same time that MEO, 3-meow, and 4-meow was kind of peaking in Norway or Sweden, they had this other methoxamine ketamine catalog, ketamine log peaking in London, which is slightly different. So you can see like what things cross borders and which uh, amounts. So if you could do this in London, you, you could probably do this anywhere. 
So the same group uh, took it on a road trip. So Matt, tell us how that turned out. Of course. So um, to start with, there was an initial study done by this group that looked at, they wanted to look at the drug use among um, different cities within the UK uh, on a weekend day. So essentially this group of, of, of people placed the street urinals at, was it, at nine different locations um, throughout England. Um, the locations were Birmingham, Brighton, Bristol, Edinburgh, Leeds, Liverpool, London, Manchester, and Newcastle. And they placed them out there on a Saturday evening near different locations that were um, thought to be nighttime economy venues, quote unquote, such as bars and nightclubs. And they left them out there for a 12 hour period on a Saturday night. And after this period of, period of time, they went and collected some urine from this, this gross little urinal thereafter. And then did some chemistry, um, including LC mask back and some other things to um, identify the different drugs that were um, deposited within those urinals. And they divided the, the, the substances that they identified um, into three different categories, novel psychiatric substances, um, classical substances, which include like cocaine, MDMA, amphetamines, and opioids that we typically associate with um, common drugs, as well as steroids, too, in the process. Um, and then they did some histograms looking at like differences of these substances in the different cities, and um, what was found where, and how much was found where. So kind of to give an overview of that, what was interesting, but I guess not really very surprising, was that the novel psychiatric substances um, were found mostly within the larger cities, uh, particularly London and, Bur and uh, Birmingham in the UK. Um, and then the, the most common ones found um, were mephedrone, methiopropamine, yeah, um, and then a whole list of things that are beyond my ability to pronounce rapidly. Um, but essentially, these two were, were the, the main ones. And then methoxetamine was another one that was found too in a few different cities, which is a different derivative of ketamine. Um, and then there were a number of substances that were just one or, one or two of them were found. From the classical perspective, cocaine was interestingly found in every single urinal they, that they sampled. MDMA was the second most common one, which was found in eight of the nine locations. It was not found in, in Leeds. Uh, MDA, uh, methylene dioxy, um, amphetamine, which is a similar derivative of MDMA, was found in, in most locations. Morphine was found pretty widely. Um, cannabis, surprisingly, was only found in about five of the nine spots. And meth was only found in one of the nine spots, which was kind of surprising, only in London, um, that it wasn't more widely noted. They did find caffeine and nicotine in every single sample, which is not very surprising given how widely those substances are used. Um, but I was, a little, I was a little surprised that amphetamines um, weren't as widely identified as, as some of the other things, particularly given that amphetamines are generally prescribed um, for different uh, mood disorders at baseline. Um, but I, I think overall, it's, it's not surprising that cocaine and MDMA also were, were found so widely given that it was Saturday night and those are typically associated um, with like weekend recreational use more than more than say just uh, dependency on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but yeah, those are those are kind of the main highlights from those areas. Um, they made some comments that no anabolic steroids were found in London, which is kind of surprising. And I, I think and I think that part of the issue with this is because you're sampling just one toilet um, outside at nighttime in, at one location. It's highly dependent on the people that. I go there, and just because you don't find something that doesn't mean it doesn't exist either, because it's dependent on how many people use it, like what what's the traffic in the area, like how much of that blue uh, substance was in the toilet that keeps everything clean. I don't know if that reacts with, with the compounds in there. And actually, I'm surprised they didn't really comment on that. Like, do any of the substances that, that are used as as purification agents, or I guess like anti, um, I guess smell control things, react with any, any of these substances either, and could actually like falsely limit what you would find in the area. So that was kind of interesting though, and I, and I think overall not very surprising that the two biggest cities in, in the UK were the ones that had a novel psychiatric substances since those are the not novel things and, um, sorry, it's not novel psych psychoactive substances. 
So it sounds like you know you could do this anywhere, and it's yeah. pretty inexpensive really to put these out in where you think the busy nighttime activity mm -hmm. is, and you'll see differences, different cities, yeah. uh, what's coming and going. I'll mention two substances which are really tiny little footnotes in the drugs of misuse abuse. Now, they only found a couple of once each was TFMPP and it's closely related to BCP. These are both are quote legal highs that originated in New Zealand. Um, so then be someone visiting from New Zealand or something that brought their quote party pills with them, which is how they're often known. They were illegal to buy actually from the bartender in bars in that country. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they got generally scheduled or outlawed in too many countries and government status in England. But those were like mentioned once uh, on the graph and once in, in the paper as well. Um, but you know, it kind of like expands the proof of concept that you could do this everywhere. You kind of just put a lot of sort of a nice little end note on that. I give you the second paper on sort of the same thing in the Nordic countries. So tell us what they found where it's a bit colder. So in, in, in there's a little bit colder there too. Um, so the second study was looking at the different stimulant drugs that were found in a, in a handful of Nordic, Nordic countries. So a little bit further north from the UK. Unlike the UK study, which looked at um, temporary toilets that were placed within the city at different random spots, it's very dependent on the people that visited that specific toilet. Um, this wastewater-based evidence epidemiology study that was conducted in the Norwegian, or I guess the, uh, the um, Nordic countries, look, was uh, obtained samples of water from the different wastewater treatment plants. So it was able to capture overall a much broader um, uh, population um, catchment area than, than the previous study I talked about was able to, with the benefit of, because you're looking at a much larger area, you're able to pick up theoretically more substances. They narrowed the uh, evaluation to just the main stimulants, including cocaine, MDMA, methamphetamine, and amphetamine. Um, they said, they talked about using, looking for cannabis, but that's not really stimulants. I'm not really sure what, how, how that came up, but they weren't able to measure it for some reason. Um, so what they did was, the main cities they looked at were, um, I cannot pronounce the main capital of Iceland, Reykjavik, um, Torfshan, which is uh, the main the capital of the Faroe Islands, which is a small group of islands in the archipelago north of Denmark, Oslo, Stockholm, and Helsinki uh, were the other three um, capitals they looked at. And essentially what they did was, they went to the various wastewater treatment plants, sampled water for one day period of time, and, uh, over a seven-day period in each of the locations, so had essentially one sample from each 24-hour period um, per day over one time. So you have uh, Monday through Sunday, and they give a pretty broad cross-sectional view of what was being um, used within the city. And then they did some some chemistry analysis on all that and looked at some things. Um, just as some background, there have been a number of other studies that have been done throughout Europe looking at the different um, substances that are used. Uh, in different regions, and just as a highlight, similar to what was found in, in the UK and much of Western Europe, cocaine is the main drug of seeming drug abuse in that area. In the northern part of Europe, so including northern countries, um, amphetamines and MDMA are generally considered the main stimulants, and methamphetamine is considered the main drug of abuse in Central and Eastern Europe, um, also because that's generally where it's produced. Um, so essentially, after they did all the collections and did some math and some chemistry, they uh, um, presented the data, and, so not so, and it's kind of interesting the way this all panned out. So they presented the data both looking at like, overall what were the main substances that were produced, and then they also divided, divided it up um, between day and weekend use as well. So the weekend was defined as Friday through um, Sunday, and, we, and then the weekdays were the other days. Um, and then the main things they looked for um, were the four main substances I talked about. But they also looked for cocathylene, which is a little surprising. I'm not really sure like, uh, why, why they included that, since it's, it's a metabolite of using cocaine in the setting of alcohol. But neither here nor there. Um, from drugs and abuse perspective, um, in the amphetamine category, um, Reykjavik was um, the, the most common, the most common drug of abuse in, in Reykjavik was the amphetamines. Stockholm came in a close second um, and then it was much less in Helsinki and Oslo. But surprisingly, Helsinki took the, took the prize for most methamphetamine in the Nordic, Nordic countries. 
um, with Oslo coming in second. Um, Torshan, Torshan uh, only was reported to have methamphetamine and no other drugs of abuse, which was a little surprising. The authors uh, mentioned that in that um, sit capital, the white wastewater treatment plant actually only had a catchment area of about 800 people. So I'm surprised given the small sample size of who could have been included in that, in that data, they actually ended up including this at all in the data series, um, since they actually did not detect any other amphetamines, MDMA, cocaine, which I'm, I would suspect more goes to show that it's just that population could have just been an outlier and who was using what, especially given the amount of population sample from the 800 people, um, rather than none of the other drugs are being used per se. Um, from the MDMA perspective, Oslo uh, took the prize for the most amount that was being used in, the, in, the, in any of the city capitals. And in cocaine, um, Oslo, Stockholm, and Reykjavik were all pretty similar um, across the three. They made a lot of comments that drug use was either stable among various drugs are generally increasing over the period, period of time since the last um, large sampling that was done in mid-2015s. And then from the perspective of like weekday versus weekend use, they, that it was interesting that in, in Reykjavik, um, they actually had a concert going on in the same same week that they did all the sampling, which I also would have thought they might have like made some, some considerations to maybe pick a different week so they didn't pick an outlier when doing all the comparison, but uh, it is what it is. So in, in Reykjavik, they found that amphetamines particularly had a pretty large jump in use between um, weekday and weekend use, and not surprisingly, MDMA also had a pretty large jump um, across. Um, but this, this actually held true for pretty much all the cities that like MDMA use significantly increased on the weekends. Um, and then similarly, cocaine use, even though it was like, relatively high in Oslo at like baseline, did increase um, on weekends throughout all the cities. Um, even and methamphetamine generally increased a little bit, but not, not to the same extent that you did in the other um, categories. So I think it's kind of interesting how these things, different things pan out. I think it also kind of confirms what we, what we suspect about MDMA and cocaine use, that you expect more use on weekends compared to weekdays as, as it's generally considered a party drug. One thing I do find interesting about both, about, about the study is the fact that using, using amphetamines as a uh, way of, look, of, of evaluating like uh, substance, illicit substance use um, in that amphetamines are generally very widely prescribed at baseline for these different uh, mood disorders. And then I, I would suspect that it might be skewed a little bit given how widely they are used, um, or how widely they are used. And I think it, it isn't surprising that the use between weekend and weekend doesn't have as much of a gap compared to some of the other drugs. Yeah, it's you know, a little different in that this is more of a downstream, if you will, yeah. a sampling, you know, rather than putting the public urinal right outside popular bar, popular venue where people are uh, congregating on the weekend. This just took the wastewater treatment plant, which is way down at the end of the collection system, but even in smaller cities like 800 people in uh, Faroe Islands, they were able to detect something. Well, so well the dilution effect has got to be gigantic, yeah. you know, when you talk about the amount as opposed to, you know, those urinals only had a capacity of so many gallons, mm -hmm. which was still pretty large. But a wastewater treatment plant is like gigantic as far as how much you can do. I think you can still pick up and, and cite trends that occur. Yeah. So um, to bring it all home, um, there's a nice summary article that came out just last year, uh, written here, um, and a nice title of Waste Not, Want Not, talking about how we can maybe use this as a research and public health tool. Really. So mine's on wastewater-based epidemiology for drug trends. Historically, surveillance for epidemiologically for drug surveillance has relied really upon clinical information from hospitals, um, business center charts, and also population surveys. But basing this information solely on clinical statistics, uh, we run the risk of it being underestimated, the true scale of this drug use epidemic. So for wastewater-based it allows for surveillance from wastewater, monitoring of drug use, and also establishment of drug trends. Typically, wastewater is sampled from treatment plants, pumping stations, or food manhole plants. The wastewater undergoes a solid phase extractor where the effluent is separated 
and both the liquid and solid phases can be analyzed by LCM aspect to identify the specific substances. Surveillance can occur at multiple locations. Um, we've kind of talked about this already, but there is a downstream sampling in which treatment plants are tested from treatment plants, which is the most distal point from the origin of the wastewater. This allows for a larger catchment area, but some of the shortcomings is that there's variable waste travel time and degradation of metabolites. Then there's upstream sampling in which this comes from a neighborhood level in which this provides precise analysis of drug exposures. It's pretty granular, gives you a sentinel detection, and it's generally accessed from portals or manholes where uh, the flow is aggregated from thousands of homes or individuals. Additionally, other uses of wastewater can look at pesticide biomarkers or even heavy metals as well. So, wastewater-based epidemiology can be used to assess for the scope of drug use. It's able to identify newer synthetic agents and designer drugs. Serves multiple functions, uh, mainly to it serves as a method to understand the relevance of drug use and also to detect the emergence of of specific drug use epidemics. So for example, in an area of high opiate drug use, this potentially can allow public health to treat those areas with more programs for opiate prescription take back or even community outreach for medication-assisted treatments. As for the opiate epidemic, we've seen three waves so far from these prescription pills to heroin and fentanyl. Now there's a coming of a fourth wave in which stimulants are now combined with opiates, as we've seen from reports and also autopsies. Certain other waves that we've seen, like there has been a rise in methamphetamine. It's detected in wastewater in multiple countries, globally: China, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. Although um, some it's confounded by other stimulants with a similar metabolic background or pathway, however, the other interesting thing about wastewater detection is that it's so specific, it can detect for certain routes of exposure. Like in specific, uh, N-dimethylamphetamine, which is a paralysis marker, which indicates that the methamphetamine was smoked, as we see in the wastewater. Likewise, for cocaine, uh, the pyrolytic products is anhydroecamine and N- anhydroecamine methyl ester, in which they're able to specifically tell the route of this was from smoking crack. Other things that this article mentions were the biomarkers and the biosensors, and there's a need to develop portable assays at the, the site of sample collection. So there are biosensors in which they can test sewage in the field. This is highly sensitive and selective. It's ease of use, low cost, and rapid analysis. I think this comes really in hand when it's able to check for specific elements like nucleic acids, antibodies, enzymes, and microorganisms, but this allows for real-time monitoring, and also it comes, it's very helpful in the sense of heavy metals, where if it's detected over the threshold of mercury or lead contamination, it would flag it. Then the article mentions a couple of limitations in which wastewater with this catchment it not only does it include homes, but it also include industrial facilities and whatnot too. Then there is also a lot of resistance from and concern from community leaders as um, potential stigmatization of certain hotspots. So there's some reluctance for the communities to take part in this. Uh, so in conclusion, I think this is very interesting where potentially public health can step in to help. Um, and not only are we able to see like, the emerging drug trends, but I think it, it serves its purpose and it's a, a very non-invasive way for us to see emerging drug trends. Yeah, so you, know, you have to move past the paranoiac sense that Big Brother is watching what goes down your toilet, but it's not being used as a personal basis to punish people. It's, it's being used as a public health outreach, as a way to put more resources in the community put more opiate addiction treatments in the community, or in other sense, I'm going to mention this a little bit in the article about how COVID rates have gone up, how lead poisoning has gone up.
gone up, how pesticide exposure may go up, and all these are each important public health problems that can be detected with like essentially installed in the sewer system biomarkers that essentially can be monitored the same way you can figure out if the water flow to a certain region is going up or the electricity flow is going up or down uh, in an area. So I think this is sort of part of the future, I don't say all the future, but part of the future of public health surveillance. We've moved from like surveying people like tell us what drugs you use to people coming into the emergency room, which is a select group of individuals who are sick enough to be in there, to these street collections, to sewer water collections, to sort of a, almost like there's a traffic cam on every corner version of detecting drugs and abuse. I think it'll give us more granular information and perhaps be able to identify the next emerging problem, if there is a next problem, which I'm sure there will be. The question is, do we have the the right public health apparatus to move forward and whatever, put Narcan out there more readily to warn people about the dangers of some emerging you know, ketamine analog or whatever it seems to be poking its head up above the rest in any given site or time period. So thanks everyone for participating, telling us all about our trip of how to figure out how, how to monitor for emerging drugs of abuse. This is certainly a story that is ongoing. Um, but we'll uh, certainly keep our eye on these different projects around the globe. Thank you.